Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my time radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DAV radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, the politics of teleprompters. Auto cues, reading a script, and when things go wrong. Uh, we're going to hear from the woman who's operated teleprompters for every US president since Jimmy Carter, bar Reagan. Amazing stories about uh, basically how Joe Biden jumps around his script a lot. Uh, and we'll uh, take a trip down memory lane for some of the uh, funnier moments of uh, uh, British politicians making a mess of the auto cue. Strong message here. We'll do that in just a sec. But first, it's time for this The Columnists on Times Radio. And we say hello today to the spectators. Please go to Katie Balls. Morning, Katie. Morning. And former number 10 business advisor and presenter of the Jimmy Jobs podcast is Jimmy McGoughlin. Morning, Jimmy. Morning, Matt. Right, uh, let's head across the channel then. Uh, Rishi Sunak right now is meeting uh, President Macron. Uh, they are going to discuss Britain giving France another £200 million uh, to help uh, with the issue of the small boats. Um, how do you think that will go down at home, Katie? Did we seem to be throwing money at France, but not necessarily, some might think, uh, getting very much back? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's going to be one of those announcements which um, suddenly leads to Tory unity or lots of people cheering. I mean, ultimately, as you point to, I think there's quite a lot of disillusionment, not just amongst voters, but also amongst in the Tory party at uh, you know, repeated announcements of deals and yet the fact that channel crossings are going up. Um, but I think it probably is quite smart, actually. If it, um, if you look at the various things that Rishi Sunak can do, there's lots of reasons um, that actually the illegal migration bill this week is a long way off having any real effect. It could get uh, dragged through the courts. Um, and even if it does uh, get to a point when it's operational, uh, making it successfully operational is going to be a, a lot of work. Um, and therefore, I think Rishi Sunak to have any hope of, uh, you know, going near his small boat pledge needs to be pulling at every lever he can. And I think I've spoken to ministers who think deals with France will be more important than the legal migration bill. So I think the question is, what does that actually lead to? But more interceptions c- could be one way to try and to actually turn things around slightly. Yeah, cutting off its source. Um, just while we've been speaking, actually, Rishi Sunak's just tweeted saying, uh, as he met uh, Emmanuel Macron, close neighbours, great friends, historic allies, it's great to be in Paris. Uh, everything's great and uh, uh, <laughs> it's, it's all just great, Jimmy. 
It's all just great. I do think the personal relationship between the two of them will be quite important. And I think there's got the potential there to be quite a close bond. It's always important, those relationships between leaders. You know, they're similar age, quite similar outlooks, kind of internationally, I would say. Obviously, very both very interested in tech startups and that part of the economy. So I think it's quite important that it happens for that. And I think they probably will get on. I mean, there's always going to be a creative tension between Britain and France when it comes to lots of issues, whether we were in the European Union or not. Um, But hopefully we can work well together on, on some of these issues because they are one of our closest allies. It's interesting. Bruno Waterfield, our, our man in Brussels, I think was saying yesterday that uh, Emmanuel Macron is a bit taller than Rishi Sunak. So actually, might, he might be quite happy to be pictured meeting him and shaking hands and all that sort of thing, because it's not often he manages to um, uh, he manages to do that. Um, Katie, is Rishi Sunak on a bit of a roll? The uh, the Windsor framework went quite well uh, last week. The immigration legislation has landed well, or at least on the government's terms. Uh, this week, Rishi Sunak's pretty good at PMQs. Um, he's getting, you know, quite a lot of support from Tory MPs. There's less grumbling than there probably was a couple of weeks ago. If he manages to get France over the line this week, maybe the budget lands okay next week. Do things start looking up a bit for him? Yeah, I mean, I think things already are looking up a little bit for him. Granted, it's a pretty low bar when you come in as Prime Minister and they've had to skip the membership stage because they're MPs, but but ultimately because it was the second leadership contest that year and you're coming into ultimately trying to calm a really chaotic situation. And I think that, therefore, I think what's changed Rishi Sunak in the past fortnight is we've got to a situation whereby he now looks as though he can be in charge of events rather than just being uh, someone who is dealing with the baggage of you know former prime ministers or trying to placate parts of the Tory party. I think the protocol did that because he, he took a course that lots of people warned to be dangerous. And then on boats, he's doing something. I mean, which is going to upset, as we've seen lots of people. There's questions as to whether, whether it works. But again, it is quite a bold action. And therefore, I think there is a bit more of a spring in his step. I still think he faces, a, you know, the Tory party hasn't changed overnight. So he faces an uphill situation. But you do wonder if he can keep things in this sense and his approval ratings are going up, even if the Tory parties aren't yet. You could get to the summer and be in a much better situation for the Tory party. Now, much better would still would be a 10 point lead only for Labour, which is still a huge lead. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but you don't need much. And I do think actually, if you did get to a situation and was somewhere off it, where there was suddenly only a 10 point lead, and I'd like to say that in to commas i think that would freak lots of labor mps out um you know there's lots of things that were pretty unpredictable in terms of uh, you know doubts about uh, people's leadership if you even have something which still looks as though you know a big labor win and actually keir starmer is someone who just wears his mood so on his sleeve that you know if they're doing well in the polls and he's feeling very confident he's very buoyant and then he can suddenly look slightly less certain if things are looking slightly less promising um jimmy i want to ask you about uh, if, if if Rishi Sunak really is on a roll, he's ticking off all these things, Brexit, tick, small boats, tick, budget, tick. What about the Boris Johnson question? I was really struck. Let's take a look at this. This was uh, Robert Jenrick as the immigration minister on uh, question time last night, addressing this idea of Boris Johnson giving his dad a knighthood. I don't know what the role of the government is in terms of approving the list. My personal view, as I've said, is that it isn't sensible okay. for a sitting for a former prime minister to nominate members of their own family. Um, could he go the whole hog? Would it be a, a coup for Rishi Sunak if he just refused to sign off Boris Johnson's dad's knighthood? 
Um, I can't imagine Boris is actually going to put him forward for it. I just think that's not going to happen. Um, I mean, I think Boris, you know, he loves being sort of centre of attention and kind of, you know, has always been, you know, sort of a bit of a mischief maker and so on. So I, I think there's an element of that with this um, story taking out. But I do think that, you know, going on to the point about is, you know, Rishi Sunak on a roll, I, I think he is somewhat. I mean, I think with any new job that anyone has done, there's a period of acclimatisation on it. Um, and he was very, he was quite quiet at the beginning. That was sort of a deliberate strategy set out by his team just to kind of like calm the the, the waters a bit. And actually, I think that the Tory party, yeah, what it loves more than anything else is is winning elections. And actually, it's going to get to the point where you know, we're less than a year away. I mean, this time next year, Matt, we will probably be in the full throes of a general election campaign. And that does focus minds. And actually, I think when you look at the polls at the moment, you know, one of the most important things in politics is momentum. And it strikes me that there's quite a lot of similarities with where we are now and where we are 2014. I mean, look, I come at this from a point of bias, right? Like, I'm a Conservative supporter and, you know, have known Rishi Sunak for many years. But I do think when you look at the odds markets, and so on, that actually, you know, eight to one, the Conservatives forming an overall majority. Yes, of course, that seems unlikely at the moment. But if the polls narrow, and they will do, because Labour, I don't think, is going to win by 20, 25 points. Um, you know, that, as you say, Keir Starmer sort of wears his heart on his sleeve a little bit. Um, and actually, I think, you know, there's a real opportunity for the Conservative Party to kind of build that momentum. And when that starts happening, and when there's more questions about Starmer, and should he be braver, and should he be bolder, you know, that will sort of gnaw away. So I don't think that this is um, a foregone conclusion by any stretch of the imagination yet. And yet there are other things which look like the Conservatives are making things hard for themselves. The the latest delay to HS2. HS2 will be delayed for about another two years, says the front of the Times. Full line may not be ready until 2041 or beyond. I mean, you've, as a, a former business advisor in uh, in number 10 and Theresa May, you'll know that, that business just wants certainty. There were businesses who moved in part to Birmingham and so on because they... They thought that this was this was happening. Why are we so bad at building anything? I'm not sure. I mean, it really is a question. I mean, you look back at history and how quickly things have been tweeted, uh, how things have been built over the years in terms of things like the Eiffel Tab and all these amazing infrastructure projects. Um, it, it's it's a real worry, and business is. You know, it does crave certainty, but there is an element that, you know, there will always be uncertainty. But when you've had sort of six business secretaries in the space of three years and, and so on, like it does, it, you know, it really doesn't help business on, on that side, kind of because there's a long tail that's made with these arguments and these decisions about where to invest, et cetera. So it is. Yeah, you know, it's it's not great news that it's it's been delayed. You know, businesses will not like that. You know, Andy Street is doing an incredible job in Birmingham of persuading the likes of HSBC, Goldman Sachs, all these companies to move there. And a big part of what Andy's doing with it is because of HS2. Now it is still going to Birmingham in the same time frame, etc. But it does seem, you know, it could alter the economic geography of the country, and it's a shame that it's being slowed down. There's a, there's a big tension inside the Conservative Party, isn't there, Katie, between those who want it because it's going to their part of the country and those who think it's a massive waste of money. Yes, and but I do think we're now reaching the point where 
those there are some of those things a massive waste of money I think so much money has now been wasted on it um to, to stop it at this point um would be even an even greater waste of money and I think we're now in a situation of just least worst options where it feels as though it's almost being salami sliced as a project to the point that it's not really going to please that many people um <laughs> as opposed to what it was supposed to be originally um but if it wasn't going to happen that should have been a decision some time ago um, so almost and, and everyone loses type of a situation we're, we're slightly heading towards. Uh, right, let's go back to uh, PMQs. Well, there's been a lot of this this week, uh, of uh, lawyer bashing from uh, from the government, as well as bashing the civil servants and the blob and the Labour Party. Uh, so let's take a listen to uh, Rishi Sunak uh, at PMQs talking about Keir Starmer on Wednesday. His position on this is clear. He wanted to, in his words, scrap the Rwanda deal. He voted against measures to deport foreign criminals, Mr Speaker, and he even argued against deportation flights. Well, and we know why, because on this matter, he talked about his legal background. He's just another lefty lawyer standing in our way. Oh, yes, the lefty lawyers. Uh, do you think this, this line of attack works, Katie? I think it depends on your aim. I think it can do. Um, someone asked me this week, is Suada Braverman you know, in trouble in the Tory party because of all the criticism? And I slightly thought anything but really. Um, <laughs> yes, she's being heavily criticised, but I think her standing in the Tory party, at least on the right, has risen this week. Um, and therefore, I think the rhetoric, if you want to have a wedge issue and ultimately, which is what the Tories are part trying to do with this bill, um, and depict yourself as on the side of a certain voter and everyone else against it, then it can have, I think, it can help with that uh, Clearly, there's problems with it, too, in the sense that um, not all lawyers are lefty and you are potentially turning away people you need to work with in the future. But I think in a short term strategy, we've seen in the past, it can be a useful tool. But actually, Suella Bowman is a lawyer by trading, isn't she? Yeah. Is she a lefty? Um, I mean, I suppose for somebody she might be. Uh, in fact, she's not the only one, though. Uh, let's speak to a non-lefty lawyer. Jill Andrew is an employment lawyer and a member of the Society of Conservative Lawyers Executive Committee. Morning, Jill. Morning. How many of you are there? Is it just you? No. I, I knew I was going to be asked that, and I don't know the answer, but I, there are a lot of us. Hundreds, I would say. <laughs> And what do you make of it then when the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary uh, are saying that any, you know, all lefty lawyers are standing in their way? Um, I think it's a bit sad, really. Um, firstly, I, I mean, Keir Starmer is a lefty and he is a lawyer, so it's a, it's, it's a true description. And I think it has to be seen in the context of Prime Minister's question time and the knockabout. But at the end of the day, it's the parliamentarians who make the laws, not the, uh, not the lawyers. And uh, there's part of me that also thinks. If you think of like lots of prominent uh, uh, MPs who've had other, you know, Jeffrey Cox, I would not describe as a lefty lawyer, but he's certainly one of the, the highest earning lawyers in the in the House of Commons. It, it seems like a sort of going against the grain thing that Conservatives dismissing actually the sort of occupation that they that you you traditionally think you dominated. Well, <clears throat> interestingly, Nicholas Fennell, who's chair of the Bar Council, who's hardly known as a lefty lawyer, made the point that, if I may quote from here, it, it betrays a startling and regrettable ignorance about the role of lawyers in society. So I, I think it's a bit of a, it might have a short-term populist impact, but I think longer term it's it's quite 
serious. And are you, as the uh, um, uh, a member of the Society of Conservative Lawyers, are you making representations to the government, to the Home Office, to to tone it down a bit? I wouldn't quite put it in those terms, but I think where we are concerned about the direction of travel of, of the government in term, in legal terms, uh, we do we do make very very strong representations. Yes. Um, Jimmy, do you think it's problematic for the Conservatives, not least when they've got Conservatives in, uh, lawyers in their ranks, but also, um, as Jill was saying, um, that lawyers are ho- upholding the law. And once you get into the idea that there's something sort of unfair or uh, dodgy going on, the, the, the lefty lawyers are standing in the way of, of the people, that's not a great place to be, is it? Well, yes, but I think it has to be seen in the knockabout of PMQs, right? I mean, you were saying earlier in the show that sort of, you know, Rishi's almost on a bit of a roll with some of this stuff and it's it's getting better at PMQs and so on. And and that does mean you need to use sort of a bit of this um, attack nature in terms of going at Keir Starmer more. You know, that does fire up the kind of Conservative Party as a whole, not just the right of it either. So I think it's a it's it should be seen in the context that it that it is during PMQs. Um, but I mean, Suella Barman did it in the comments this week. She said, uh, talking to another MP, my honourable friend talks about activist lawyers. I'll tell uh, honourable members who the biggest activist lawyer is. He's leading the Labour Party. Do you, Jill, do you think Keir Starmer's an activist lawyer? I, I don't think most people would recognise him as such. <laughs> um, I mean, there are, undoubtedly, there's a cadre within my profession that are at the the extreme edges of the profession in terms of the sort of crusading type of work they do that would probably be properly classed as left-wing lawyers. I think Keir Starmer, as I said earlier, he is a lawyer and he's a lefty, but I I think the context in which it was made was not entirely appropriate. Um, I do think there's something... Well, just there's something interesting there where you talk about activists, and I think it's something we've seen a bit across the media in the last couple of weeks with... You know, Isabel Oakeshott, Gary Lineker, and all these different types in terms of, well, what are people first? Because they can be, you know, journalists, broadcasters, but are they activists? I mean, there's this sort of blurring of the lines a lot, I think, you know, partly because we can all communicate a lot more, right? Because of Twitter and social media, you know, we wouldn't have known Gary Lineker's views 20 years ago on, uh, on migration, et cetera. But now there's so much more of this. And I do just think there's, there's a cultural thing that we need to get sorted about you know who's speaking when and what i mean i say sorted it's probably impossible and the <laughs> horse is well and truly bolted but I, I just think it's an interesting thing that keeps coming up at the moment in terms of well how are we defining people and their jobs it's also part of me thinks katie if, if you went out in the street and actually spoke to people and asked them what an activist lefty lawyer is most people wouldn't know what you were talking about don't they no they might step away me <laughs> well there's only one way to find out it's time to you to go and do seven. yeah okay that well i know what i'm doing at 11 um no i don't think they would and i i mean i think it can be a uh dangerous rhetoric if you're suggesting the whole pro- profession is untrustworthy and uh, you know and as we've been saying uh many of them are in the tory party and um, i also think there's something which is 
the Tories too are, are known to go for different legal opinions when they when they need one. Um, there's lots of different legal opinions out there. And I think Sir Alan Bravman is one of those figures who often perhaps might not like the advice from one set of lawyers and then will work around to find a, you know, advice from a different. So 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 there can be subjective interpretations too. And therefore I do think you have to be a little bit careful in the sense that um, you know, as as Attorney General, Sir Alan Bravman was uh, had some criticism seem like a very political AG um in the role compared to some of her predecessors. So it's not as though, uh, you know, by m- talking about politics and mixing it up with the law, I don't think um, these lefty activist lawyers are completely alone in that. The Tories have been getting much closer to mixing politics with the law in recent years. <laughs> Jimmy McLaughlin and Katie Balls there joining us on the podcast. Now, don't forget, you can get yourself a time subscription. And if you subscribe today, that's Friday, March the 10th, before four o'clock, you can get four months for just a pound. But you need to get a wriggle on if you're just listening to the podcast uh, on the date that we released it. Uh, just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box. Up next is the art of the auto kick. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Reading out loud is tricky, as I show most days. Uh, Politicians wanted to appear to be speaking spontaneously rely on auto cues, also known as teleprompters or even just idiot boards, which were first developed in the 1950s to help TV performers remember their script. Today, they're used in everything from TV news, radio and, of course, in politics. Well, earlier this week, I spoke to Dermot Murnahan, who signed off from presenting on Sky News after 15 years. And he told me about the moment when his auto cue let him down. So many. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, that's part of the job is that you kind of hope that you know a bit about the, about the story you're reading out. Sometimes you don't. Um, and yeah, you've got to find a way to to seg through it. Um the, the worst auto cue fail was very recently on me, and it wasn't one that I could ad lib. Was um, announcing the death of Her Majesty the Queen um, when uh, we got the statement um, that uh, Her Majesty had passed away, and um, my producer said we can go with it because you know you double check, treble check, make sure it's absolutely right given the enormity of the announcement you're making. And um, they said, well, yeah. You know, I was standing outside in the rain outside Buckingham Palace. My producer said, yeah, just go with the statement. 
I can't speak, my mic's live. And I thought, what statement? Auto cue didn't have any. It was, it was, it was gone. You know, the statement came to the point where I was saying, you know, Her Majesty uh, the Queen died today at, and he stopped. She was 96 years old. The Queen died just a few moments ago. At which point I have to compute, given that it's the official statement from Buckingham Palace, is it at where Her Majesty passed away in Balmoral or at the time she passed away at? Um, so I just paused. And then luckily he he shouted in my ear um, once again. So, yeah, you know, it can it, it can be scary and it can be Burgundy-esque as well. <laughs> that was Dermot Monaghan there. But Burgundy-esque, of course, he's referring to Von Burgundy, the newsreader from the films, uh, the Anchorman films. Well, that's going to do it for all of us here at Channel 4 News. You stay classy, San Diego. I'm Ron Burgundy? <laughs> Damn it! Who typed a question mark on the teleprompter? For the last time, anything you put on that prompter, Burgundy will read. <laughs> I mean, I've done it before. I do it all the time, just read out whatever's in front of me. Uh, I've definitely introduced the wrong newsreader when they've been sitting in front of me because it said something different in the script. So anyway... Got to think about politics uh, and auto cues as well. In a moment, we're going to hear from two people who spin doctors for senior politicians uh, to, who tried to basically get them to read out loud. We'll also hear from the woman who operated and still does teleprompters for US presidents. But first, as we like to on a Friday, we thought we'd bring you a top 10. This week's top 10 auto cue fails. At 10, when David Miliband got so excited by his own speech, he couldn't wait to get to the end. They said it then, they should live with it now. And if we had followed... I beg your pardon, got ahead of myself. Uh, perhaps he needed an order with the reserve of our number nine, a statesman like Gordon Brown, launching his leadership bid in 2007. Today I announce that I'm a candidate to be leader of the Labour Party. So it's a shame that the whole speech uh, saw his face covered by the teleprompter screen. In at eight, time poor David Cameron liked to memorise his speech, didn't really get on with auto cues, like this unfortunate reference to the poorest people in the country. This is who we resent. At seven on the presidential campaign trail, Donald Trump knew which issues really get voters exercised. They read the same speech. They de, 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 de. I say we should outlaw teleprompters. And then when he was in power, he did something different, relied on them a lot. And it's always a lot of fun when you come up and the people don't have the teleprompter working. In at six, pick a message, any message, Jeremy Corbyn. Just don't read the notes on the auto queue. Strong message here. In at five, Rishi Sunak's first party conference speech as Chancellor was virtual and a bit weird. My first conference speech as Chancellor isn't quite how I expected it to be. At least he wrote about it himself, though. Unlike our number four, Clive Lewis reportedly punched a wall after Labour communications boss Seamus Milne rewrote his auto cue seconds before his big speech on Trident, taking out a commitment not to change Labour's policy. Our party has a policy for Trident renewal. Yeah, they all got uh, very cross about all of that. In at three, hard to believe, but even journalists get it wrong sometimes, as demonstrated just this week by Andrew Pearce on GB News. Good morning, it's 9.30 on Thursday the 9th of March. And this is on, on, on the point. His TV show is called To The Point. It's tough being a presenter. In it too, someone should have told President Biden to leave out the bits in square brackets. A lot of innovation 
Because of the actions we've taken, things have begun to change. End of quote. In the past three weeks... <laughs> At least it's tough. And in it won. In a case of not saying what you see, Welsh Tory leader Andrew Davis was obviously thinking with his stomach when reading out his party conference speech. We will make breakfast. Brexit a success. God, there were a lot there that I remembered uh, very fondly. Let's bring in two people who probably do as well. Paddy Hennessy was a, is a former advisor to Ed Miliband and Sadiq Khan. Morning, Paddy. Morning, Matt. How are you? Not <laughs> bad at all. And uh, Gabby Burton, Baroness Burton, is a former press secretary to David Cameron. Morning, Gabby. Hello, Matt. Hello, Paddy. <laughs> Hi, Gabby. Are you, two, are you two friends now, having having sparred across the political... Um, Isle. We've always been friends, haven't we, Paddy? We've always been 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 very good friends. Um, Gabby uh, uh, was working for David Cameron when I was a journalist as well, so we've known each other for a very long time. Um, and yeah, friendships go across political divides. Uh, who knew? That's who it. knew? Well, let's take you right back then, Gabby. When David Cameron won the Tory leadership contest in 2005, it was off the back of a speech delivered without notes, no auto cues at all. But once you get into government, you can't you can't be constantly memorising speeches, can you? No. I mean, just to go back to that speech, though, and, and when he, you know, used to address conference without telling us that he was going to do it without notes. I mean, I still had anxiety dreams about those kind of things. Um, <laughs> so, um, but there was a sort of dawning realisation that in government, you're probably giving about three or four speeches a day. Day and you, you, um, whilst the auto cue is not a popular and I don't think a particularly uh, brilliant way to give a speech, it's a sort of um, necessary evil, and you certainly have to know how to use one because they're not, um, they're not entirely straightforward as as we as we've seen from those brilliant clips. Um, and then Paddy, uh, it, the the idea, the David Cameron idea of memorising your speech and wowing yeah. party conference led Ed Miliband to try the same thing back in twenty uh, fourteen. But it didn't it, go it brilliantly to plan, did it? With, with with fairly disastrous consequences. So, I mean, this this story is is, is one about the dangers of not using uh, the auto cue. In that um, Ed uh, was was so transfixed by the idea that uh, David Cameron had, I think, previously in the uh, not only the speech you mentioned, but actually the previous year, I think, twenty thirteen, done his keynote conference speech as prime minister uh, from memory. Uh, and no doubt would again the next uh, week, as Ed and some of those close to him thought, that he should do the same. So he tried to do uh, a whole 6,000-word speech um, and unfortunately left out the very key section uh, about the economy <laughs> and how Labour were going to uh, in- eliminate the debt, the deficit, I should say, um, ASAP, uh, in the next in the next parliament, uh, once we won the next election, which we didn't, um, uh, and uh, um, just no mention of the economy in his speech at all, because simply he'd forgotten about it. Now there was some hapless aide uh, who may or may not have been me, uh, who, was then, who was then sent out to explain this to the hordes of. Uh, I remember this well, Paddy. I can picture exactly where it was yeah. in the uh, yeah. in the press you room. You were one of them. Yeah. You were one of them. And um, there were all sorts of sort of weird conspiracies going around even then. But I, I was just checking back on what the Guardian report said. And the Guardian uh, report um, quoted a, a Labour spokesperson with 
there is no conspiracy when he is speaking. He is trying to remember a 6,000-word speech. I think that was the best I could do. It wasn't very good. <laughs> so I apologise to you uh, and to uh, and to Ed M. But uh, it really wasn't my fault. It was his. Hey, hey, Gabby, that must you. I, I seem to remember then the following week, as Paddy was exactly saying, what David Cameron did was he stood at a lecture and just read a speech out. And, and <laughs> no, that's right. I think we'd made our point um, and, and probably... Uh, probably had learned from from Ed Miliband's um, nightmare as well. I mean, it it is a it's a hugely risky thing to do. I, I mean, I don't think it's a very wise thing to do. But anyway, if you can pull it off, it's brilliant. But but I mean, it is the the risk reward um, ratio is uh, for me personally is not one I would I would want to take. Uh, um, the thing is, Gabby, once you get into government, for you know, the, the prime minister is making speeches all the time. I mean, outside sort of COVID and that sort of thing. But you know, there's a reception here. There's an after dinner event there. There's a statement in the House of Commons. There's a uh, you know a big event, maybe a foreign foreign trip. Um, you can't possibly be memorising all of them. And if you want the TV picture to look good. Using a, yeah. an auto cue of some sort does look better. Yeah, and there's definitely a place for it. And, I, and we got to the stage where um, we we did use it sort of more for those sorts of set piece uh, events. And we actually got um, a very nice guy who sort of understood the speed with which uh, David spoke at. So that was very helpful because obviously they can get can completely out of control and then you know speed up and have a life of their own um and that can be pretty maddening and then uh, but the other issue that that david always had with auto cues and i can completely understand that now that i give a few more speeches myself is that you have to have such a leap of faith in the machine working um the person who's you know handed the speech over is the speech actually sort of uh um you know properly written and there are any typos or massive errors as we've seen in in the clips you gave and also you can't um you've lost that ability and it's particularly important if you're a good public speaker to read the room to 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 make impromptu remarks and also to sort of shorten the speech if actually this amazing piece of oratory that you thought was going to just wow everyone is is sort of you know, dying on its um, <laughs> dying on its feet. You, you, you've got to try and cut that. You've got to act quickly to um, to keep the energy going, as I put it. I hadn't really thought of that, but you're right. If you're reading a speech off of sheets of paper in front of you, and you you, know, you, you can tell you've lost the room, you can just put some pages to one side and skip ahead. Yeah, exactly. And, but and, once and you're onto the auto auto cue, you've just got to keep going, regardless of what the room thinks. Exactly. You've got there, to there keep grinding on. Yeah. Sorry. Go there are other problems. There are other problems with auto cues as well. In fact, in that speech that, that in that in that top ten that you mentioned, uh, you mentioned the fact that that Gordon Brown's great um, uh, launch speech for his leadership campaign in London in 2007 saw there were these his face was totally obscured by these giant uh, screens, which sparked panic amongst his team. But they realised they couldn't do anything about it um, because the, even though the pictures were horrendous, because the speech was was on the screen. And I always thought, you know. Here was this guy who had spent 13 years, you know, waiting for this moment, <laughs> plotting, allegedly, to, uh, you know, to for, for Blair to stand down and him to take over. And here at last is the big moment he launches his campaign and you can't see his face because it's blocked by the giant auto. Because right, there were different ones, aren't there? There were sort of, sometimes at parts of commerce, they're on like big TV screens. And like, mm. sometimes there were three of them, which is why you see politicians sort of turning. But yeah, those sort of glass, pieces of glass yes. on a pole. 
Um, yeah. Really dangerous if they're too close to your face and you can't see your face. Of course, the other thing, um, you know, Gordon Brown's about a long time wanted to be, uh, uh, wanting to become a Labour leader. Another one, Jeremy Corbyn spent slightly less time, which meant that when he was first confronted <laughs> with an auto cue, <laughs> that didn't go brilliantly either. Let's take a listen. We need to be investing in skills, investing in our young people. And, strong message here. <laughs> I, I actually thought he actually almost got away with that. Because, I mean, I guess there is a strong message. And in some way, it's conceivable just about... Don't often make excuses for Jeremy Corbyn. But in some way, it's conceivable but just about it might have been seen as kind of part of the speech. But clearly, no, it wasn't. Yeah, let's admit it. It was reading out the uh, reading yeah. out the instruction. I, I think, think there's a sense also that we, we in British politics, we don't actually use the auto cue that much. And so our teams, are, you know, we're, nobody's that used to doing it. So obviously, it's, it, that's clearly a, a very dangerous thing to keep in a speech <laughs> and then handing to the, to the auto cue worker. So... Um, uh, I, I guess that it sort of all, all goes in circles, doesn't it? And so, where just finally, where do you think we are in the sort of the cycle of uh, auto cues, reading from speech notes, memorising it, prowling around the stage, standing at a lectern? Where are we in what's what's currently going to appeal to voters? Do you think in the run up to the next election for both Keir Starmer and for Rishi Sunak, Paddy? I think it, it, it's got to be a matter of sort of personal personal taste combined with kind of what looks best. I think the kind of Cameroonian era, if Gabby will for, forbid me, of striding manfully around the stage and memorising everything, even though you're desperate to go to the loo and all these kind of things. Or eat a, a banana. Eat a banana place. has gone. Um, so there, I think the more formal approach is back, as we are seeing with more, you know, sort of lecterns we we see being wheeled out from n- number ten, which change um, as often as the the, the Conservatives change the Prime Minister, um, which quite often. Um, but I think I think you you've got to, you know, if you're working with a politician, let them kind of dictate what the sort of thing they like to do, they're most comfortable with, and then get to, uh, and then try to get the, the pictures to fit around that. What do you think, Gabby? Do you think we, at some point we will be promised Rishi Sunak's most personal speech yet, won't we? I, I, well, I think I think Paddy's right. You know, we've obviously had a we've had a bit of a mixture in our politicians. You know, Theresa May, who p- perhaps wasn't the best sort of um, public speaker ever, but but you know had her sort of style. Then obviously we had Boris Johnson, who's an incredibly talented public speaker for for good or for ill. Um, and I think it's it's got to have an authenticity to to the person who is actually you know making those speeches. But I do think though, in the run up to the next general election, I suspect voters will want a seriousness. They won't want the sort of you know yeah the the the, the theatre around it. But I do think you've got to speak with passion. And I'm not sure that actually a sanitised sort of auto cue um, style will go down that well either. Let's cross the Atlantic now to find out how they're used in America. In fact, they're also used teleprompters, as are known in America, are used uh, probably far more uh, than they are in the UK. Well, Laurie Plesko is a teleprompter operator who's worked with Joe Biden, pretty much every modern US president, all the way back to Jimmy Carter. She explained to me exactly how it works. The client will email us or give us a thumb drive with their script on it and then we upload it into our teleprompter software. And from there, we need to format it. And that's very important for, for speakers because if it's not formatted correctly, then your talent it is going to goof up and that's not a good thing. The talent will start speaking 
and the teleprompter operator will follow their pace. It doesn't always work that way. Some people aren't familiar with teleprompters and they stand there and wait for us to roll while we're waiting for them to roll. But basically, we're there just to support them and guide them to just prompt their speech. If you're doing a big political speech, do you get to meet the politician, get used to their style, get chance to rehearse, or do they just turn up, plug it in, and away you go? No, there's no time for rehearsing. The president of the United States is very busy, and they go over their speech with their writer. But when it comes to the teleprompter, you get your thumb drive, you put it into your software, and they wait on you. Then the president comes out. It's all quite stressful. <laughs> this sounds very stressful. The president comes out, definitely with the, the, all of the American media, probably lots of the global media, all watching as the president's about to speak. And you're sort of controlling what the president's saying. Which presidents have you operated teleprompters for? I would go all the way back to Jimmy Carter um, to our present day president. You've done every president. Yeah, except Ronald Reagan. I did not do Ronald Reagan. And so what's your advice then? Because obviously there are always new people. You've seen lots of people come and go in politics, presidential candidates, vice presidential candidates, governors, senators, whatever it might be. What's your advice to someone when they're confronted by a teleprompter for the first time? What are your sort of do's and don'ts, your tips for people? Well, the first thing is you should get to know the teleprompter operator by name. Because this is a two-way streak and the operator is, is trying to help you. And if you can know them by name and call them by name and ask them to highlight certain words, that's going to make things better. And to know that you're the one controlling the rate of the speech. So whenever you want to talk, the, the teleprompter is just going to follow with you. And if you speed up, it'll speed up with you. If you slow down, it'll slow down. A lot of times presenters will will speak and say, you're going too fast. Stop, stop, you're going too fast. And we're going the pace that they want to go. So we will slow down on purpose. I'm not sure. I think that maybe their eye line is in the wrong place. That happens in the Anchorman films, doesn't it? He starts reading and reading faster and faster, which means the teleprompter <laughs> gets faster and faster. And there's sort of, there's no way out of that. You just need to stop and start again. Now, what happens if, uh, I, I imagine some presidents are more prone to this than others, they wander off script a little bit. Something pops into their head or they something happens in the room and they start talking or they jump to a different bit of the script. How do you cope with that? And who's, I think I get my senses having seen him, Joe Biden might do that a little bit. When I've worked with him, he does ad lib, but very intelligent speakers often will be reading their script and it reminds them of a scenario that may be further down in the script and they talk about that and the teleprompter operator is then left wondering, should I move on or should I stay? Uh, a lot of uh, teleprompter operators will panic, but that's just part of your job. The first time I worked with him, the writer just smiled and said, stay here, don't jump to the rest of the script. And Joe did a great job. He ad-libbed, he went from here to there, and then he segued back to the teleprompter. 
So for me, it it wasn't stressful. <laughs> Tell me about a moment then when it has been stressful. Okay, that might be one. <laughs> <laughs> Once I was working with Bush Sr. And right before he came on stage, all of the Secret Service dogs came around my equipment. This was in Alabama. So I, there was a teleprompter from Alabama with my equipment. And I got a call, an urgent call saying, we may not be able to use you, the Secret Service. Well, I know I, I don't have a bomb in my equipment. We don't have any security threats in the gear. I don't understand what's going on. Well, it turned out that that particular operator was getting high on the way to work. And <laughs> all of the cases smelled like marijuana. So the dogs were all over the gear. Wow, that sounds that sounds bad. To be clear, that wasn't you. No, no, oh no. <laughs> that was a no, different they operator. Were, they were renting my gear and that was somebody else. Yes. Another moment where I was working on a national convention speech and uh, I don't want to say whether it was Democrat or Republican, but it was a national convention and everyone on, st on stage proceeded to get drunk, which was a problem because <laughs> they're walking around with um, wine glasses and beer glasses and cocktails stumbling, spilling their liquid on my monitors, almost running into the mirrors, which tip over and can break. And if my mirror breaks, you cannot use the teleprompter. So that was very stressful. That was one of the worst moments, I'll say. So it seems like there's lots of things that could go wrong. Yes. Yeah. It's just like that. I was particularly impressed one day we were giving a speech outdoors and the presidential poles that hold the glass were rocking back and forth in the wind. It was terrible. And nobody can rock back and forth and see the script and, and look like a good speaker. But so this happened to me when Biden was speaking and I don't know how he did it, but he pulled it off without a hitch, without a hitch. But that was that was very stressful. Yeah. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 